1: Dr. Cubit, thanks for being here with me today. I'm excited to be back. Yes, and today we have another guest expert joining us on the podcast, and she is a familiar voice as she's joined us on the podcast in a previous episode. She holds a bachelor's degree in agronomy from UW River Falls and a master's and PhD in agronomy from the University of Minnesota. Since 2008. She has been the Equine Extension Specialist in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Minnesota, where she was promoted to professor in 2018. She leads the University of Minnesota Extension Horse Program, which reached over 5 million horse owners and professionals in 2022 as a result of her successful efforts to incorporate technology and social media into research and extension programming. She has secured almost $2 million for her applied research program, which focuses on improving equine forage utilization and has published four book chapters, 68 journal articles, 153 abstracts and proceedings, and has advised 13 graduate students and two postdoctoral research associates. She was recently elected vice president of the Equine Science Society. Welcome back, Dr. Krishona Martinson, to the Beyond the Barn
2: podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. And you know, you listed all of my good qualities in one <laughs> fall swoop. So thank you. Yes.
1: And this was really fun for me this year since Dr. Cubit was off somewhere else. I had the opportunity to attend the Equine Science Society and meet you in person, which was fantastic. Yeah, it was great to meet you as well. Yeah. And so we're excited to have you on today. Before we do get started, I just want to share with our listeners that any of the topics we cover on the beyond the barn podcast are more generalized and not specific to any individual horse or any specific situation. So be sure to always work with your veterinarian and nutritionist before making any drastic changes to your horse's feed program. You can always reach out to us to talk directly with Dr. Cubit or Dr. Duran on specifics you would like to know. And, The topic that we have you joining us today about is basically toxic plants, plant species. And I think it's also safe to say that we should also understand that there are so many toxic plants in the United States. The list that we're talking about today is most definitely not an all-inclusive list. And so you, Dr. Martinson, are going to be touching on some of the ones that are the most common. and. Then, towards the end of this episode, we'll talk a little bit more about how to be proactive and identify the most common ones in your area, because also, what might be toxic for one animal may not be toxic, as toxic for another animal. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and I'm excited to get going on this. Excellent. So, obviously, we've heard a little bit about your background before since you've been on here. And we know about your love for horses, but can you tell us a little bit about your drive to pursue a master's and PhD
2: in, a, in agronomy and weed science? Yeah, sure. Well, I always tell people that this is maybe a story best told at happy hour. But in, in high school, I mean, I grew up in a very rural farming community in Wisconsin, and we had a really great high school biology teacher. And fun fact, my both of my parents and I, Had the same high school biology teacher. He actually retired after my freshman year, I know. That's like how you know you're from a small town, right? (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) But we had to do something called, we had to do for our high school biology, our freshman year, we had to do a Wisconsin wildflower collection where we had to collect 100 flowering plants and then memorize their common name and their scientific name. And I, for some reason, I dug that. I mean, I really enjoyed that. And I still have my binder of all the. We had to like press them, identify them. And it turns out a lot of them are toxic plants. So I guess it just kind of piqued my interest. And I really always enjoyed biology and plant science. And so, I mean, you guys, I didn't even know you could study weed science, right? It makes sense because so much of farming is controlling weeds. But I was exposed to it in college, and it's just something that I enjoyed and kind of fell into, and here I am. I mean, the sad thing is, horses are really susceptible to a lot of these. It doesn't happen often, but they are really susceptible to poisonous plants. And do you know, do they tend to be more so than other livestock species? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but man, I sometimes I feel like horses just... They like to die. And it's so sad, right? Like, we can do everything right. But there's very few, like, especially small ruminants, like your goats and your sheep, Mm -hmm. they tend to tolerate plants better than horses. And really, cattle can tolerate a lot of things better, with just a few exceptions. So horses do tend to be a little bit more sensitive to poisonous plants compared to the other ruminant grazing species of cattle, sheep, and goats. What is something
1: about weed science and toxic plant species that you wish more horse and livestock owners knew about? Kind of just like, if you could think of like a general like tip or tidbit, what do you feel like that would be?
2: So... And it's so hard, right, because horse owners love horses. They really probably don't have any interest in becoming an agronomist or a plant scientist. But when you own animals, I really wish people would learn to identify the basics. So learn to identify the most common legumes, whether that's alfalfa or white clover or red clover in your area, and the most common grasses, whether that's, you know, bahia grass or, timothy or orchard grass because there's really only probably a handful of those that grow and that should be in your pasture and hay so if you have a good idea of what those look like when there's something in your pasture hay that shouldn't be there at least you know hey it shouldn't be there it's impossible for me to know all of these you know potentially toxic or harmful plants but if I know that they shouldn't be there that cues me to try to find an expert who can help me determine if this is bad, especially if I'm seeing symptoms in my animals. Right. That's actually, that's a really
1: great one. I mean, we talk about all the time, Dr. Cubitt mentions all the time about, you know, taking all of these things like your horse's temperature, knowing what's like normal Mm -hmm. for your horse, their temperature and things like that. So then if something is off, something's abnormal, then you know, so it's like completely viewing it from the same perspective, but for your pasture.
0: And I think last time you were on, we talked about the plant ID things on your cell phone, the apps not being very good for specifically pasture grasses. But do would you recommend a local extension office to probably have a list of what's more regional? It would be a good place to start.
2: Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. So anyone in your local extension office, if you have access. It sounds funny, but we have a Bell Museum of Natural History, and there's actually a plant curator there that's very good at identifying things. If you have a master gardener, they're very good at identifying. Or someone. That's another
0: good one, yes. a master gardener, yeah.
2: Or someone that even lo- works at your local agricultural cooperative, like where you right. buy seed or feed or fertilizer. A lot of times they will employ an agronomist who's good at plant ID in in your local or regional area. So, those are all good suggestions. Perfect. Yeah, that's excellent. And how likely is it for
1: horses to actually consume toxic plants? If they had choices, I mean, is that something that they would regularly do, or what's dependent on that?
2: Well, you know, I never want to panic people, and I don't know where that line is between preparing people and panicking people, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to prepare and not panic. You know, there are poisonous plants in trees or harmful plants and trees everywhere. But in my opinion, the amount of toxicity we see is fairly minimal. But there are some, some times of year, and I know we're going to get to that, in some areas where it becomes more common. So I would say if you have good pasture management, and you're not overgrazing. And I think these are topics that you all have covered previously on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And if you are also supplementing hay during the fall or winter months when your pasture may be very sparse, you know, I think it's pretty rare. That's good. Yeah, no, that's great. But I'm open to your guys' feedback too, because I'm in a region, you know, in Minnesota and really the upper Midwest. You know, during the winter months, well, let's face it, like nothing grows, right? We're feeding mm-hmm. hay. Mm-hmm. And then during the summer months, we tend to be, we well, we tend to have a good amount of moisture and cooler weather. So we tend to have nice pastures. Now, where you guys are from, you may see differences. You maybe see more issues than what we see here in the Midwest.
0: I would say for me on the East Coast, from Florida to Vermont, you know, heavily horse populated areas most of the equine community doesn't have the luxury of a lot of pasture for their horses. Maybe the pasture is more for exercise or socialization, but not necessarily for you know, nutritional needs. I would say a lot more people rely on hay year round on the East Coast. And just from my experience, that's Probably where most people are going to maybe see some of these poisonous plants is in the hay, because a lot of times the fields really don't have anything in them at all. So maybe you could touch on that. Yeah, there Are, are they more, when it's in hay, it is the horse, it's much harder for a horse to sift it out. Am I correct there? Or
2: Yeah, Dr. it you are 100% right. In a pasture, a horse that is well-fed will very unlikely purposefully graze a toxic plant because a lot of times they don't taste good, right? There's some kind of an anti-quality factor that makes them just not appealing or palatable to the horse. Like you mentioned in hay, a lot of times in hay it's accidental ingestion because the horse can't sort, especially in like a, a large round bale. Maybe in a small square bale, if it's spread out in a feeder, they can sort. But, you know, the horses just can't sort as well in hay as they can kind of selectively graze in a pasture. So you are absolutely right. Most of the toxicity issues we see from poisonous plants are from hay and not pasture. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I also think about when, you know, it gets, you know, baled into hay and such the weed and the plant or, and the hay is also, they're both dried out and lose all that moisture. And so I've, that plant structure kind of changes to where it's quite a bit more similar to the hay itself versus if it was out
2: in the field somewhere. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's true to a degree, when you get something dry in hay, you know, our hay should be about 15% moisture or less just to have good quality, long-term storage. And the problem is it can get a little bit brittle. So you Mm -hmm. could have some key plant structures like leaves or flowers just kind of break off or kind of disintegrate, and then it's very hard to tell. But, you know, if you are feeding a mostly grass hay and you have these big broadleaf weeds in there, and we know for sure they aren't a clover or an alfalfa, again, that is when knowing how to basically ID a few things in your area, that is when, again, the warning flag should go off in your mind, hmm. This giant leafed plant in my hay is is not normal. It shouldn't be there. I better have someone identify this to see what it is.
0: So I'm going to throw another one out there. I'm just thinking of it and thinking of personal experience. And it's not on our list that we've already kind of gone over. But what about falls? My kids. I remember when they were little. Krishona, you can remember, Katie. Mm. They put everything in their mouth. (sighs) They're constantly eating stuff they shouldn't. Foals seem to be quite inquisitive as well. Would you say that foals may be more likely to nibble on things that they shouldn't? If it tastes bad, they probably won't nibble again and, and wouldn't have an issue. But what can you tell me about, you know, foals?
2: You know, I think that's a great point. So in some of the poisonous plant research that we have done, especially when we have been working with seasonal pasture myopathy and the seeds of box elder trees, you have to be careful about foals or horses that tend to be, we call them more adventurous eaters. I'm sure all of you have horses with personalities where they're sort of into everything and those tend to be younger horses. Mm -hmm. And also foals have just a lighter, a smaller body weight And a lot of time, I mean, for a lot of poisonous plants, there isn't a diagnostic test and we don't really know the exact toxin in the plant or how much it takes, but for some we do. And of course, if you have a smaller animal, it takes less of them nibbling and eating to have a toxic effect. So foals, adventurous eaters, we've also seen that horses that are new to a site. So we just had a case recently where a, a mini, a miniature horse and a pony were gifted to a, a therapeutic riding center. And unfortunately, they were new. I mean, there were horses that had been there for 15 years without issue. For whatever reason, these horses, we think, went after some toxic plants that we were still trying to identify exactly what they could have maybe got into. And simply because they were new and maybe more adventurous eaters, maybe they hadn't learned to stay away from them. They did have some fairly significant issues with those horses. So again, anybody that's new to the property, a foal, horses that you would consider more adventurous eaters or sort of into everything, are horses you would have to watch much more closely than resident horses or horses that just sort of are just more of your average type grazers or eaters that is such a great thing to bring up
1: because if you're if you're in an area where you have had horses and you've never had issues you would never think bringing a new horse and you probably it wouldn't even cross your mind to think about that
2: yep and we we see that a lot with with horses that are brought in in fact that is what kind of sparked some of our research into poisonous plants was that exact scenario where you've had horses on site for fifteen years, you bring in two new horses and with five days those horses are deceased or are exhibiting major symptoms of a poisonous plant. Okay. So and then what are some
1: ways that toxic plants can spread? Oh gosh, there's
2: there's so many I know there's like so many. But what are some, I guess, more of the common ways? So I know this isn't a pasture management right podcast, but honestly Anytime you overgraze a pasture or have a hayfield that is maybe, you know, a lot of, especially alfalfa hayfields sort of have a three to five year lifespan. So a pasture that is overgrazed or a hayfield that is just kind of ending its natural life cycle, you tend to get openings in the ground. And you know, what grows in those openings are weeds. They're very opportunistic plants and some of them are toxic. So weeds can, you know, just grow from seed. Some of the seeds can remain dormant until they have an opportunity for up to 20 years. Although 85% of weed seeds do tend to germinate within the first year, but that 15% of weed seeds kind of lay dormant in the soil and wait for that opportunity. Some of them tend to float in water. So One of the things I always tell people is if you are fortunate enough to have a stream or a pond on your property, which cosmetically is beautiful, right? There are so many toxic plants that grow in and around water. You really have to pay special attention and look. If you have a heavily wooded pasture or or an area with a lot of trees... That is another area where they grow. So because some seeds tend to like are are buoyant in water, when you have just natural flooding and receding water cycles, we see a lot of places plants, you know, around pond edges or stream banks or things of that nature, or where you have occasional flooding or kind of wetter soils. A lot of them kind of hang out in shady areas. These plants are shady in more than one description, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean a lot of times it's just seed, but again, they need that opportunistic opening. So either a hay field that's nearing its just end of life or a pasture that's been overgrazed or not well maintained.
0: Here's another scenario for you. So I grow elderberries in my mm-hmm. garden because I, I harvest the flowers. I know they're probably not a weed, a poisonous weed, but I also spray my fence lines because I hate weed eating. It's like the worst thing in the world to do. So I spray a tiny little line down the fence line. So I'm mowing the other day and I'm like, why are there elderberries growing on the fence line? Well, the birds eat the berries. They sit on the fence. They poop. And that tiny little strip that I've sprayed, nothing else is growing. And these dang things are growing. So there's an, there would be another way that's so easy for these things to spread. Birds and my management.
2: (laughs) I I am so glad you said that. So a lot of, and not that it's toxic, but buckthorn is a weedy shrub that so many people, you know, struggle with and actually it's a laxative. So when the birds eat it, it makes them you know defecate <laughs> so actually the plant is actually pretty smart like around all of these flyways there's buckthorn everywhere because the oh, birds wow. eat the seeds it's a laxative and then the birds spread it everywhere so you are 100 percent correct birds other animals and really from field to field any kind of haying equipment i'm right. sure if you've ever baled hay you've seen all that just yeah. like the little plant parts that are on it's you the know planet. the baler or the rake or the hay mower You know, just at the end, when you're done with a field, just try to wipe that off the best you can, you know, have a little broom with you or something so that you don't spread those seeds going or plant parts going into other fields as well.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And then what would you say, I know we're going to go through a few examples here. We're going to talk about a few, but I would love to know, what would you say is probably the most common poisonous plant that you are familiar with or have the most incidences with in your work with horse owners um, in your
2: region? So there's probably two that come to mind, and you can tell me how much detail you want to get into. One of them is horealysum, and it is one that is common in hay, and it's very common in the upper Midwest and not so common where Dr. Cubitt is from, especially on the southern part of the East Coast. So, and the other issue is a lot of hay from the Midwest ends up in the South or the East just because we can grow hay well here. And honestly, horses in that part of the country just haven't been exposed to horealism. So we see much more exaggerated symptoms when horses that are, that just don't have a history of having it around in their environment are exposed to it. And the other one is foxtail. And mm-hmm. foxtail is more of a harmful plant. It's not really toxic, but we have right. had a few cases where, you know, the foxtail seed head had these little microscopic barbs or awns on that little seed head that makes it look like a bottle brush cleaner, right? And those can become embedded in a horse's mouth. And we did have a horse come to our university hospital that had so many of them embedded in their mouth it wasn't practical. I mean, it just, it wasn't an option to remove them. And the horse was so off-feed and so sick that the horse did have to be euthanized. But usually it is just a physical, the mouth ulcers and foxtail is prevalent everywhere. Right. Yeah. I
1: think, I think everybody has had a little bit of experience with foxtail.
2: Oh yes.
1: yes. It sure knows how to grow well oh, it does. <laughs> and spread itself. It does. It does. <laughs> and This question, I think, is going to be one of the the most key things for our listeners on the episode today. But if we think that our horse may have been exposed to or have consumed any kind of toxic plants or things like that, what should we do to be the most proactive
2: about that situation? What next steps should we take? So the first thing is, you know, depending on the symptoms, you need to make sure that your horse will not further injure itself or you as a person, right? It's people, horses, and then things. You would want to call your veterinarian immediately. You would also want, if you believe it's coming from the hay or a feed source, remove them from that location immediately. You know, take them out of the pen where the round bale is, take them out of the pasture where you're suspecting it. If they're in a weedy dry lot, take them out of that dry lot and put them in a stall with nothing in there if it is safe to move the horse. I mean, I think that's what you just have to be proactive, look through the surroundings, and then remove any type of contaminated feed source that you have. Call your veterinarian and then follow their directions or their advice If it's safe, maybe take some basic, you know, temperature, respiratory, you know, kind of clinical signs to help your vet assess the situation, and then just kind of wait wherever it's safe and and wait for your veterinarian to arrive. Excellent. Yeah, I I think that'll be great advice for
1: anybody that does find themselves in that situation. And before, Dr. Cubit, do you have anything else that you want to add or or mention before we get into some of the, the more common toxic plants?
0: No, no, because I think as we go through, we're going to chat a little bit about kind of the stage of the plant. I know we were talking about foxtail earlier mm-hmm. and the seed head being the the part that actually hurts the horse, but is an immature foxtail plant with no seed head does not pose any issue to the horse. Correct, Dr. Martinson? Or? You are
2: absolutely correct. Yeah. It is just yeah, seed so. head. yeah.
0: And I know, you know, with my cattle, we had someone brought Johnson's grass onto oh. our property. Yay. Terrible for horses and terrible for cattle if you let it go get tall or at certain times of the year. But I'm, I'm interested in your comments as we go through on what life stage some of yeah. these may be more detrimental you know, maybe simply mowing your fields when topping your fields could keep those plants at bay versus having to try and spray for every weed that might pop up. So I'm interested to hear as we go along. Right. Excellent.
1: So we have these kind of broken down a little bit by signs and symptoms a bit. So the first one that we're going to talk about is nightshade berry. So Dr. Martinson, can you just Briefly, tell us a little bit how we identify these plants, what they look like, how much of it can be toxic if consumed. Yeah.
2: So the nightshade, so nightshade is actually in the tomato and potato family. So if you think about sort of what a tomato or potato leaf looks like, that's similar to what the nightshade leaf looks like. And there's many different types of nightshade. But the berries start out green, and then they usually turn like reddish or purple. And if you've ever tried to like pick them out of your garden or your fence line, and Dr. Cubitt, you are right, a lot of poisonous plants kind of creep in on that fence line as well. They actually will stain your hands kind of a purplish color. And the Native Americans did, did use that as like a dye that's one of the ways people think that it was maybe a beneficial, you know, plant at one time which is for dying. But we don't we don't know a whole lot about the details of this one and I think that's what upsets people is sometimes we don't know what the toxic agent is or how much of it is a toxic dose. But we think that less than 1% for Eastern black nightshade berries, is known to produce toxicosis or even death. So that would be three to seven pounds of berries per thousand pound horse. So okay. it's, it's kind of a lot. Like, I can't believe those berries would be, like, appetizing in any way just by looking at them. Mm-hmm. But it, it is a relatively small amount. Right. Okay, no, that and that's good to know. One of
1: the signs and symptoms of nightshade can be colic. Are there any other signs and symptoms that we should look for
2: in our horses? You know, that's probably the biggest one. You know, reduced appetite, colic, diarrhea, and then rarely death is usually what we see with the nightshade berries.
0: Speaking from experience, as a child, I ate nightshade berries. I had to spend a night in the hospital. I got my stomach pumped but I was just very little. I don't think I ate that many, but anyway, that's, I live to tell the tale.
2: (laughs) That is
1: wild. It is. It's super crazy. Wow.
0: I did live in the outback.
2: That's true. That's true. (laughs) And I'm so glad, I'm so glad they got, I'm so glad that you, you, they addressed it. Well, and as kids, like, I mean, we were kind of
1: briefly talking about this before, like kids are so curious. We have like, I don't even know what it is. Some kind of bush that grows kind of in our lawn. And the my girls love, they love collecting in their buckets. Like they make, you know, food, like mm-hmm. I'm quoting food, like outdoor food. Nobody really eats it. And they always collect these little berries that grow on it every year. And it was always my fear when they were little. don't you put that in your mouth? That's not a blueberry.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you never know, but I do think that, you know, especially nightshade, Dr. Kubik, you are right that You know, it's kind of one that can grow in like a dry lot or an overgrown dry lot, or really it's a fence line. It is a fence line weed that we commonly see.
1: Yeah, the berries and the birds. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. sense. And then how about mustard seeds? Because that's kind of, colic can kind of come up with that one as well.
2: Yeah, and that really has the same symptoms that you would see as the nightshade berries. So again, mustards have many, many different kinds of plants. You know, like yellow mustard, common mustard, there's a plethora of them. And the cool the not the well, maybe the cool thing from a weed science perspective right. is that these mustards we call them fast plants. And if you ever did like experiments in high school biology class with fast plants, you probably use some kind of a mustard. They really go from seed to seed in 30 days. So their reproductive cycle is really quick. So you see them early in the spring and late in the fall in places where you have distinct seasons like Minnesota. Because of that, they're common in new seeding pastures, new seeding hay and oats, which obviously, you know, are used in many, many things. With the mustard seeds, we really see the same symptoms, especially diarrhea, colic type symptoms. But we think as little as 0.25% of a horse's body weight is what they would need to eat you know, to kind of have that colic or diarrhea. And again, a lot of times that we see it is if horse owners that are still feeding kind of whole oats in the diet and maybe are growing their own and aren't having the oats clean, or maybe buying oats from a friend or a neighbor and those oats aren't being cleaned or blown. Mm -hmm. Um, That is where we see it a lot. And We have had a few cases where I've helped in some larger dairies that were chopping new seeding alfalfa, which is a common practice, and it just had so many mustard seeds that the dairy cattle were having, you know, quite a bit of diarrhea type problems. Right. So it's just, it's something we see. It usually isn't deadly, but it does lead to some very concerning, you know, symptoms in in horses. Right. Okay. And then how about grain acorns? Oh, green acorns, this is this is when we get all the time. So oddly enough, I mean, you guys, oak trees are beautiful, right? You would never want to remove them from your property. But we, especially this summer months, it's common to have strong thunderstorms or wind events come through. And sometimes you can knock down a substantial amount of green acorns. We don't really know how many it takes, but we're thinking like a five-gallon bucket. So you have to have a lot of green acorns that happen to fall at the right time. Really, we don't see the issue with mature or brown acorns. But green acorns, we tend to see that colic, you know, type response in horses as well. But again, it it takes a lot. And it kind of has to be a specific example where you have a heavily oak, savanna-type pasture, and you have a big windstorm come through at that green acorn stage that knocks them all down. Okay. And then moving into...
1: Another sign or symptom that has a, has a couple of them. You actually mentioned one of them already, but we can dive a little bit deeper into it for stocking up in founder
2: horealisum. Oh yes, yeah. so hore like I would say in the Upper Midwest, it is the most common toxic plant that we have. So horealisum is kind of a greenish, grayish, spindly-looking plant with white flowers, and it grows everywhere and it loves drought and there's been a lot of places in the US that have been impacted by drought recently and it likes sandy soils and it is literally everywhere when horses eat it you'll see a stocking up or swelling usually of their back legs but the kicker with this is not all horses will are, are really impacted by it only about 75% of horses from our best guess are impacted and we're unsure why we don't know the toxic agent within the plant. There's been a couple studies, but we haven't been able to find out really what it is. And, and that is the one where horses will, we've never, act, I've, well, I have never seen an issue in a pasture. It is always an issue in hay. So the mm-hmm. horses just can't sort it out of the hay. They eat it. You'll see these swollen back legs. They don't want to move. But usually if you remove the contaminated hay sores, within about 48 hours, most horses will recover, usually without assistance, um, maybe some pain management with your veterinarian, but they usually recover fairly well. But the biggest issues that we have seen is when we have Midwestern hay shipped to Florida, shipped to other parts of the country that don't have a history of horealism, and their horses are naive to it. There was a, a several years ago, there was a large Very, you know, they're always expensive horses, right? That are impacted by these things for some reason. Right. And they had an entire barn go down. And some of the horses did because they were down, then they get secondary issues from being down. And sometimes that swelling can kind of progress to laminitis, especially if the horses are put under stress. So the barn had all of these horses with swollen limbs. They put them on the trailer, which was a stress event. And then that did lead to some laminitis. So With hoary it's easier to see the planted hay because you'll see these little tiny round seed pods that sometimes are iridescent and you can see the little black individual seeds. But it's a grayish green and the white flowers. But it is best not to haul the horses. Have the veterinarian come to you if you're in an area where you have an ambulatory veterinarian. But a lot of times it's just taking that contaminated hay and getting rid of it. Horealism only impacts horses. So the hay can be fed to cattle, sheep, goats, just not horses. That is interesting. And I know you said that
1: there was a little bit of research done, but there's still kind of some unknowns surrounding it. But I wonder if it is more, it more commonly impacts those horses that kind of are newly exposed to it versus ones that maybe have been around it a while or potentially would the age, breed, or anything, have you seen
2: anything lead to possibly one of those factors? Yeah, so some of the research has looked at gender, age, and breed, okay. and they really, and everything, nothing has been conclusive, unfortunately,
1: not yet, and not... so
2: it's so hard, right, because you want some answers, and we used to say that you could actually feed hay containing up to 10% horylis lesson to horses, but we have actually adjusted that recommendation because some horses react so severely, we now say there is a zero acceptability for horealism and horse and hay intended for horses. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know, Dr. Cubitt, if you've ever had any experience with that in your area or have gotten contaminated hay in your area.
0: It's mainly been questions fielded from consumers who have purchased hay from the West and or know somebody that, you know, got hay from the west. So, no, I don't I don't see that particular weed here often or in hay that is grown here, but certainly I have a lot of clients that are buying hay from the west. Maybe they go with their friends and they get attracted to trailer load because the hay in the west is is really great quality. And so that's mainly where the question arises for me.
2: Yeah, and I would just really encourage anyone buying hay, especially from the upper Midwest, you know, you just try to have a good relationship with whoever you're buying that hay from. And I know sometimes it's coming through a broker, and you can't get those answers. But man, just just try your best to get pictures and, you know, have a relationship. And maybe you've gotten hay from them before. It's just like, you know, in the Upper Midwest, we're fairly lucky. We rarely have to import hay, but sometimes we do from like down south. And not that it's a poisonous plant, but we have the same thing with blister beetles. You you just have to inspect. When hay is coming from outside your local area, your region, because you, you just never know what other little contaminants are kind of along for the ride. Right. Another
1: one that I know I've heard a lot uh, from horse owners always asking questions about this is black walnut shavings. Yeah. They wonder so, if it's, is it just the shavings? Is it
2: the, yes, the just yeah. just the shavings. And you know, it's funny, it is really the inner heartwood. So if you have a black walnut tree, and black walnut trees are very valuable for their woodworking and cabinetry and all the ways black walnut wood is used. So the tree itself, there's maybe uh, some concerns as the leaves are coming out and some of those black walnuts are kind of immature, but it's really the inner heartwood. So unless your horse is like a beaver and like totally gnawing the tree to death and standing on the little gnawing parts of the shavings... It's, it's really a non-issue. The biggest issue is a lot of times horse owners will want to get free shavings. And I am all yeah. about free stuff owning livestock. But if you're getting shavings from a cabinet manufacturer or anywhere where they're doing a lot of woodworking and the shavings are dark in color, it's probably a decent chance it is black walnut. And when the horses stand on it, and we don't even know the toxic agent, but they do have that stocking up or laminitis type symptoms. So whatever's in the black walnut again, we don't know. When the horses stand on it, it goes up through their feet and causes issues. So
0: just So it's more of a contact it's a yes, toxin, absolutely. Because they're not eating it. Yeah, they're that's not eating crazy it. perfect. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yep. So just just stick to your pine shavings, people. That's all we gotta say. <laughs> hey, right? Or like whatever light color shavings you have.
1: Better safe than sorry for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Next, one we're going into is let's talk a little bit about white snake root.
2: Oh, white snake root is kind of a fun one. That is one that grows, it has to be shaded. I mean, it kind of has a triangular leaf and also a white flower. And I'm here to tell you, white flowers tend to never be good when it comes to poisonous plants. But again, it's not going to grow in the wide open sunny, it needs some shade. And what we see with white snake root is a very distinctive symptom that the horses have red or brown urine and it's sort of a kind of thicker looking if that makes any sense so Mm -hmm. you will know like okay if you watch your horse urinate you will be that is not right in any way shape or form so it produces this dark red brown thicker urine Okay. Sorry. There's a crop duster
1: flying over me. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> they're all over. I have a alfalfa being swathed across the street, and I got crop dusters flying overhead. So it's exciting today. <laughs> I, I didn't hear anything if that helps you. Oh, Hey, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Um, excellent. So, um, is there
2: any kind of, uh, level of toxicity with that one? So it, it's interesting. So we do know that trematol is the toxin that produces the effect in horses. And we don't really know the amount in in horses, but in cattle it's five to ten percent of their body weight over several days. Oh. So we know that it, you know, it's not gonna be an instant onset of issues, but they're having to eat it, you know, kind of I mean, 5 to 10% of their body weight is kind of a lot over multiple days. So that is something where you really need to watch. What is the quality of your pasture? Are you supplementing enough hay? Why are the horses actively seeking out something they wouldn't? And we do know that white snake root is an issue when it's in pasture and also in hay. So if you happen to have a hay field that is along the side of a woods and you see this white flower, try not to cut that and bale that into your hay. Excellent.
1: And then another, I know, super common one that people ask about, wilted maple
2: leaves. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is so common, right? Because maple leaves or maple trees are like everywhere in our world, but it's only the wilted ones. So again, we don't really know how much are the toxin per se, but obviously in the fall, if you live in an area where you have distinct seasons and the leaves shed and they fall, That is when you have it, or if you have a large storm that rolls through. And I don't know why, but I have watched my horses like try to eat leaves, and I'm like, stop doing that, right? (laughs) But I don't know why. But we do think it's maybe one and a half to three pounds of dried leaves per thousand pounds of horse body weight, but dried leaves weigh like nothing, right? Right. So they're eating a lot of them. So again, that is a case where you would want to What is your pasture management? Are you supplementing enough hay? It's in the fall. Maybe it's time to take them off pasture and transition them slowly to a hay diet for the winter months, right? Like, let's look at our environment and see. And it's only the wilted ones, huh? Just the wilted ones. Yep, so if you're on a trail ride or your horses are half giraffe like mine tend to be and try to reach up and, and, you know, and snag a fresh leaf here and there, don't panic. But if they are consuming, I mean, a significant amount of wilted leaves. That's when we have to be concerned. Okay.
1: And signs and symptoms. So that would also be kind of like the red or brown urine. Yes. Is there anything
2: else associated with that? Nope. But that's, that's the main thing. one. Yeah. Okay. And it's because there's been some red cell damage, red blood cell damage. And that's why I think you're getting that off color in their urine. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. And another
1: one that we hear about quite a bit, people ask if it's okay or not, is a buttercup. Yeah.
2: So buttercup is another one that, you know, it's kind of more of a contact, right? It leads to those mouth blisters. So there's a few plants that can cause mouth blisters. So foxtail that we touched based on and then buttercup. And buttercup likes to grow in kind of shady wet areas, but this one has a yellow flower, So if you guys Google these, again, if you have shade or wet areas, you know, you should probably know what buttercup looks like. So again, it's that yellow flower. It does like to grow kind of where it can have wetter roots. And there's a couple different types of buttercup. Tall and small flower are the ones that are most commonly seen. Okay, and so you said
1: contact. So does that mean, like, let's say that they're in a pasture and there's some buttercup cups around. Maybe they're not even trying to eat the buttercups, but they're trying to get to some of the other grasses that are in there. But they're rubbing up against it. Would that possibly also give them mouth blisters?
2: Well, so I I have to correct myself. I misspoke just a tad. It can okay. be both, but okay. it is primarily when it is eaten fresh in pasture. Okay.
1: Yeah. And I've heard that it has kind of. I mean, a lot of these, I guess, do, but they have kind of an off taste anyway. So most horses don't want to eat them, but there are some that kind of
2: get a hankering for them. Yeah. So I, you know, again, it's those adventurous eaters, maybe those younger horses that tend to kind of be into things, you know, those foals. So yes, it right? Like I've never tried to eat these things, right? I mean, I'm not Dr. Q, but maybe we should just, you know, have medical (laughs) on alert. Yeah, I'm kidding. Do not do that. 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 (laughs) But, you know, a lot of these plants, I just, they don't even look appealing, right? Like Mm -hmm. this buttercup is kind of stemmy with kind of more fleshy type leaves. And sometimes there's small little hairs on them, which again, I just can't imagine would be appeasing or inviting to a horse. But the good thing with buttercup is that when it is dried, it is not normally toxic. So it is a plant that is just an issue when it is grazed fresh in the pasture.
1: That is interesting. That's a little bit different from everything else. And I would say in
0: my area here in Virginia, in the spring, when the grasses are, you know, everything's just starting to come on, the buttercup is the first thing that pops up. And it's so pretty because there are just massive fields of buttercups and people are letting their horses out Ugh. slowly and so I would say that where I am it's probably quite common my friend who lives up the road I'm always texting her your dad needs to mow the fields there's too many mm. buttercups <laughs> <laughs> and so I mean we're, we kind of run it that in the springtime people are nervous about letting their horses out with the spring grass anyway so But we do have a lot of buttercups here.
2: Yeah. And, you know, some of the clinical signs is that blistering of the mouth, but you can also have blistering in the digestive system, which obviously we can't see, but we'll have the horse have like seizure type or, you know, kind of colic type symptoms. But what you maybe see is kind of swelling of the nose, lips, and face. When mm-hmm. they do come into contact with it. Contact with it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you'll see. Because it both. is a
0: little waxy too. Like when It is waxy. I yes. picked the flowers and they're a little waxy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. And so again, I can't imagine that would be appealing for a horse to eat, but you know, I guess I'm not a horse and I'm not an adventurous horse. Right. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if their palate's messed up, they're just like, oh, what's this? <laughs> I know. I know. Or, you know. Like Dr. Cubitt said. Or it's
0: the only thing out there and they just have to eat
2: it. And it's early in the spring and they've been so sick of being on hay all winter long that anything green looks appealing at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: Okay. And you already touched on this a little bit, but is there anything else since we're talking about mouth blisters? Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about about foxtail?
2: Yep. And I just want to reiterate that it is only the seed head and that it is just the leaf blades itself. That is not an issue because it's not a true toxicity. It's more of a physical, you know, those awns become embedded in the soft palate, which causes ulcers and causes the horse to go off of feed. We do kind of I mean, you guys, sometimes, especially if your area is having drought, it is so hard to have hay that has no foxtail. So we 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 can go up to maybe 10% seed heads in your hay, but definitely not more than that. And you'd have to keep a close eye on it because I get it. Like sometimes it's your only option. You're in an area where there's drought. This is the best hay. It's got a little foxtail. Just keep an eye on them, right? But no more than 10%. So that means if you grab a handful of stems and lay out 100, less than 10 should be foxtail seed heads. Okay. Yep. That's a good one.
1: Okay, going into, uh, let's see, photosensitivity,
2: we have uh, wild parsnip. Do you guys have wild parsnip? If you don't, you're super lucky.
0: Is that the one that people touch and it kind of makes, it like burns your skin? Yes. Yeah, we went to Vermont several years ago and Maine and it was there because I have something else we call it queen anne's lace and it is not wild parsnip but it looks the same and i'm always like oh my god don't touch it but then when we went on that trip to vermont and maine where it's a little cooler a little wetter Mm -hmm. and people were, don't touch that it's going to burn your skin oh yes so you know wild
2: parsnip is one that it has a yellow umble flower so umble think of umbrella so that big kind of pretty The flower is shaped like an umbrella, but it's yellow. In the Midwest, it has taken over all of the ditches on all the major highways and interstates. And a lot of times, especially when you get to the western part of Minnesota or as you kind of go west, you know, a lot of forage comes from the right-of-ways or the roads or the ditches, however you want to say it. And a lot of cattle and horses are fed what we call ditch hay. And I'm sorry if that doesn't sound... You know, if, that, if that's kind of harsh, but it's hay harvested from the ditches, and we no longer really recommend horses being fed ditch hay because of the prevalence of wild parsnip. So again, it has a very lacy-looking leaf with a big, beautiful yellow umbo flower. But this one is also contact. So if your horse rubs against it, if you are out there trying to pull it out of your ditch or pasture, and you have it, and you get it on your skin and then your skin is exposed to UV light, Mm. you will have severe burns. I mean, if you Google, you know, wild parsnip, human wild parsnip horse, you will see some pretty graphic human, you know, just boils and blisters on their skin. A lot of times on a horse, especially a horse with a white blaze or a light colored horse, like a Palomino or a paint horse on their white skin, people will call and say, I think my horse has acne. Well, horses don't get acne, but that you're seeing that photosensitivity from exposure to sun. So the interesting thing is if you have been exposed to it or your horse has been, if you keep them in the barn, they'll have less symptoms because they aren't directly exposed to UV sunlight. Right. But you still have to have the horse looked at because there are internal things that can also happen. It is just not that external symptoms that we see. Right.
1: Now that you've been describing it, I think there's some in Idaho, but I it's like where I'm at. I don't personally see it, but I remember us taking, we took a family trip to Alaska last fall and my daughter and husband went with our friends to go ride around on the four-wheeler and stuff. And I remember them telling her, cause she told me, she's like, mom, you can't touch, you cannot touch that. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what you're describing right now. I was like, that
2: was probably what it was. Yeah. yeah it's really common And it doesn't like to be disturbed. So it's not going to be in like a row crop field or a managed hay field or a well-managed pasture, but like a ditch that is maybe just cut for hay once a year or a right-of-way or even again, those dang fence lines, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where it will kind of grow in and you rub against it and you'll see some of those symptoms. Right. We actually used to think that it wasn't an issue when dried in hay. Oh, but it is because we have a lot of cases in Minnesota where we find it in the dead of winter, you know, in oh. January and February when there are no pastures, and we see horses with photosensitivity, and we can find, you know, the wild parsnip in their hay. So and it that's is an almost issue. always the issue. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's wild parsnip in the hay, and I believe there is a research paper out of Canada. I think where they actually had a case described where they saw it they saw it in rabbits being fed hay. Mm-hmm. So again, we do know there isn't exact research in horses, but we've seen it. And then there's the the rabbit research paper that kind of confirms our suspicion. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now we have a few different
1: clovers that can cause some different symptoms. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the different clovers and what we might see with those. Oh,
2: so, I mean, this is such a hard one, right? Because in general, clovers are a very beneficial feed in general, a very beneficial forage for horses. So I don't want people to think they have to go out and, you know, completely get rid of all of their clovers. This is something where you have to sort of look for some specific things. So probably the biggest one, I mean, I think we've all heard of slobbers, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So slobbers is actually found primarily on red clover. There's some debate if it can be found in other clover species, but we know it's for sure in red clover. And it's actually not the clover itself, but it is a mold that forms on the clover. And then when that hay is harvested and the horses eat it, they will salivate like buckets full in one day. And obviously the biggest call we get is my horse has rabies.
1: Hmm, So when,
2: you know, like that is why poisonous plants, a lot of these symptoms can be, can be caused by numerous things. So you have to have evidence of ingestion. You have to have the symptoms. And ideally we'd have a diagnostic test that could help confirm. But of course we don't always have that. So again, red clover isn't necessarily bad, but it when it has this mold on it and the mold really likes humid environments. Mm -hmm. So, Katie, where you are, I know it can be really humid. Well, I, in Idaho, it's not humid at
1: all. We're really, really good. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I was wondering though. I was like, that with the mold, it probably would be kind of like humidity would create that mold. I would humid.
2: assume. Yeah. So, Dr. Cupid, that's probably more. I mean, you guys have a ton
0: of humidity on the East Coast. We do. We have a lot of humidity right now I mean I I actually did I grew clover I got it seeded in my fields for my cows yeah but the clover really comes most like right now in the middle of summer I don't see a lot of clover and flowers out there mainly because my cows are grazing it down I guess Mm -hmm. Um, and it is humid but it's also we have it hasn't rained a lot so we're You know, the grass is actually pretty dry. Mm -hmm. I would say in the spring and the fall, when that clover is a little bit more predominant and we've got more moisture in the air and in the ground as well, allowing that mold to grow uh, would be when we see it the most. Well, and
2: clover likes to grow in really dense patches. So sometimes it makes us a little microclimate where it just kind of retains all the moisture and it gets humid. But, you know, Mm. slobbers doesn't really hurt a horse. Although if you're like, I'll never forget, I was at a show. I I used to do more pleasure oriented things. Now I do speed events. But if you have, you're in showmanship and your horse is excessively salivating, I mean, it is so embarrassing and it's impossible to keep clean,
0: right? Like you are not clean,
2: your horse is not clean. People think your horse has rabies. It's just a hot mess. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't really hurt the horse, but you do have to make sure they always have access to clean and cool water so they don't become dehydrated. And usually once you figure out the hay source and remove that red clover hay source from the horse, the slobbers will kind of resolve itself within a few days.
1: All right. And so, and then there's some other sweet clover that can yeah. cause bleeding. Yeah, so if it's moldy, uh, I should say. Yep.
2: Uh, So a few other things, and again, it all has to do with mold. So with the slobbers, it is not like the forage isn't moldy. It's a little mold that grows on the forage on the clover when it's in pasture, when it's upright, when it's growing.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: The sweet clovers, that is when when they are baled a little too wet, and there's a product in them when it molds called cumarol and if you've heard about coumarol or dicoumarol those are kind of blood thinners so when it when horses if they eat moldy sweet clover they could bleed because that that coumarol is converted to dicoumarol during the molding process but it does clear the horse's body fairly quickly so sometimes if a horse gets a cut or sometimes you might see some blood out of their nose And if you are feeding those sweet clovers, it is something to be concerned about. But again, white and yellow sweet clover, it looks very similar to alfalfa, but it tends to get taller. And it isn't a legume that is commonly planted, but again, it's also commonly found in roadside ditches. So it is something just to be concerned of when you have ditch hay. Okay, okay.
1: And and we should probably I know that you've said this but just make sure people understand it's not the clover itself but it's the ones that are infected with with mold that Dr. Martinson is talking about. So,
2: yeah, so again the slobbers and then even there are some molds it's called black blotch disease on some of the clovers that causes photosensitivity. Mm-hmm. Those are little molds and if you look on the leaves you'll find little black or kind of rust colored dots almost like somebody took a Sharpie pen and yeah. just put little dots on them. And again, I mean, you guys, it's so common, right? Mm-hmm. And you just have to watch for it, where with the sweet clover, it is actually baled too wet, and then it kind of gets moldy in the bale. The horses eat it, and that's when we see the bleeding issues. Interesting. So again, yeah. these aren't things that, you know, are going to cause death most likely, but just things that cause horse owners to be very concerned about, and you want to know what's causing it so you can correct it and not have it continue to happen. Right, right.
1: And uh, before we get to our last few, there is one I wanted to throw in and ask you about Dr. Martinson was, not that it's a toxic weed, but since we're on the subject of what we're talking about, uh, grass clippings, why is that a concern? if
2: horses consume grass clippings. Yeah. So Dr. Cubitt, you can probably chime in here as well. So grass clippings, there's a few issues with grass clippings. It's not that they're toxic. The problem is when horses are grazing in a pasture, they have to tear the grass off. They have to chew it, right? They have to digest it. When you're feeding them the grass clippings, they can consume it so quickly. So there's an issue with choke and maybe just overwhelming their system. The other issue is if you have, I mean, if you think about cutting your lawn, it's like 85% moisture. It's going to sit in this pile. You can get some pretty quick heating and molding in that pile. And sometimes you just get some mold formation in that pile of grass clippings before the horses are eating it. So we just, It's just not a good, it's not a good practice to ever feed grass clippings to your horse. But Dr. Cubitt, save me, contribute more to that.
0: No, I think that's perfect. Certainly, I think, you know, one of the things people probably don't think about is the rapid consumption and it can cause them to choke because it is pretty tasty. The other thing is, like you mentioned, it's 80% moisture and we usually dump it in a pile and it can ferment really quickly. Potentially there are other kind of small animals or bugs or things Mm. that could get into it. And botulism is another issue, but Yeah. yeah, certainly not, not a great thing to do. Also a lot of that, grass being so short, if it's a lawn grass as well, the thing that makes lawn grasses or any grasses super strong is your ability to store sugar. So when we cut that lawn grass and it is short and actively growing, I think it's full of sugar and you dump that in. That's also going to make it ferment more quickly. And for a horse that should not be eating a lot of that sugary grass anyway, you've just given them Kind of a bolus of, of sweet grass. So, for a number of different reasons, don't feed your horse grass clippings. Use it as compost somewhere else. Right. Yes. Yep. And and to, just to contribute to that, you know, we have had, and I,
2: we're getting to the we're getting to our last category. Unfortunately, the plants that cause death. Right. So maybe this is a good mm-hmm. segue. You know, a lot of plants that cause death tend to be more ornamental in nature, especially something like common U Y E W U. That is kind of an evergreen shrub. Every year we have a few cases where somebody is clipping their shrubs at home and they're like, oh, I don't have a place to put them. Oh, there's some horses. I'm just going to put this over the fence.
1: Yeah.
2: Never, ever, ever put lawn clippings or tree clippings or your fall yard cleanup, you know, just don't put that into any livestock pens whatsoever.
1: And one thing that's unfortunate, and I think sometimes it can be really hard sometimes for owners is sometimes obviously if you know better then you know better but if you have a neighbor that's nearby and they like we have a rental house that's next to our house and they're constantly wanting to like feed the horses and stuff and it always makes me nervous because I'm like well, what are they feeding them because like some stuff they can't have and I've seen other people that have talked about how their like their neighbor dumped their grass clippings over the side of their fence and they didn't know it and it ended up being pretty detrimental to that horse yeah so
2: yeah and and a lot of times it's not malicious it's just unaware right it's just they don't know but so like really I know this I know your audience here are horse owners but I wish we could do like a public service announcement you know other than slow down on the dang roads right like do not put clippings of any kind lawn tree shrub ornamental yeah just do not put them into any livestock pens yeah yeah I think that's Really, really good.
1: And yes, you're right. We are going, I put this category last because of course it's the worst one. So let's talk about some of these uh, chokecherry. Let's
2: talk about that. Yeah. So chokecherry is really, so these next ones we're going to talk about, the the symptom is death. And obviously there's no coming back from that, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Like these
2: other plants, we know the symptom is photosensitivity or colic or mouth blisters or red brown urine at least there's a chance we can address it with a veterinarian and hopefully have the horse recover. When you walk out there and find a horse deceased, obviously that is a horrible scenario to be in. and something that you can't recover from. So the only tree we do want people to remove from their pastures is chokecherry. There are cyanide in many parts of the tree, and we just don't want any accidental ingestion the same with you again that that ornamental evergreen that is so common if any of you guys have like an office building that you go into or a university or or even like a shopping center right because yews are very hardy they are everywhere highly toxic and if you are doing landscaping at your property do not put yews in your landscaping in case a critter gets out and also You know, during the holiday season, if you want to decorate your barn with like evergreen wreaths, which Mm -hmm. I know is very tempting, just don't do it or do it where a horse can absolutely not even get a sniff. You know, don't put it on their shawl doors. Right. Because sometimes those wreaths are made out of you because they are green and they stay green and they're attractive. And we just we just don't want that. Right. And I, I will
1: ask, too, with this category Are these, like, if they eat, like, any level, is can
2: it impact them that great of a level? Yeah. So, you know, the problem is we don't always know that we're going to talk about, so along with ewes, we also have hemlocks, either poison Mm -hmm. or water hemlock, and those are really considered some of the most toxic weeds in the entire U.S., and we know that two grams of water hemlock per kilo of body weight or about two pounds per thousand pound is really the lethal, lethal dose. And it's, you know, and for other hemlocks, it can be less than 1% body weight. So we're, we are talking a very small amount and with you, I've never really been given like, or I've, I've never seen kind of an amount, but it doesn't seem to take, it doesn't seem to be much. So, that mm-hmm. we have a double edged sword here. The symptom is death, and we also don't always know, but it doesn't seem to take much.
1: Well, and so some of these, I think the best thing to do is obviously to be incredibly proactive and just make yes. sure that it's not on your property anywhere, then you wouldn't have to worry about it. And then, if you are in a situation where you find yourself that way in an, the worst, unfortunate situation, if you have other animals, I guess, learn from that awful mistake,
2: but then hopefully not have it happen to other ones. Yep. And, you know, the the hemlocks, there are issues with the roots primarily, but really all parts of the plant. But hemlocks, again, have white flowers and really like to be in a moist, wet area. So like I said, wherever, if it's in the shade or a wet area and it has white flowers, it is usually never good. Yeah. So that's one thing to be aware of. Yeah. Keep your eyes open. Yep. Okay, and then how about let's talk about foxglove. Um, so foxglove is probably some people kind of say, say that's more of an ornamental or a wildflower. I would say it's more of an issue in the western part of the U.S. I've never actually seen it growing here in Minnesota. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it is more of a western plant. And again, you know, foxglove again, that symptom is death, and also the other ornamentals like rhododendron and oleander. Mm -hmm. Those are also those ornamentals that I think are very commonly known to cause death among horses and even other pets in some case. Right. So we got to watch out for those. And then box elder seeds. So box elder seeds is kind of a, a, a unique one. And that's one that I actually was fortunate enough to be involved in some research. So... In the US and in Europe there's something called seasonal pasture myopathy or atypical pasture myopathy. And through research we have actually found that there's a toxin in box elder seeds, or those little whirly bird helicopters that fall everywhere from box from female box elder trees. When horses eat those the symptom is death. Now, I don't want to concern people cuz we really don't even have we, we don't even recommend cutting down box elder trees in pastures because they're. I mean, box elder trees are located east to west, north to south. They are a very common tree, and the toxicity is is relatively uncommon, but it is something to be aware of. We see most of the issues in the late fall when pastures are thin and horses are eating things because they're hungry. We see issues with adventurous eaters, horses that are described as adventurous eaters, or horses that are newly introduced to a pasture where there are a lot of box elder seeds within their grasp. So again, this isn't something that we want people to be aware of, but we don't want them to go out and cut down trees. And interestingly enough, only the female box elder trees produce the seeds. So if you are lucky enough to have a male box elder tree, you won't even have the seeds to worry about. And the tree itself is fine. It is just those little whirly bird helicopters that
0: come down. Yes. Okay. That's so crazy that you say it's only the females. I'm watching this show on TV (laughs) at the moment. And the suspect of the serial killings is a woman because she's poisoning them. And their argument is men don't poison their victims.
1: (laughs) Only women. Boys, and then you and have the female just... box elder, tree. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're a box uh, elder. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. So we have covered, we have covered so oh much, but I think a lot of valuable information in, in this episode. And you talked about it a little bit before, but, you know, obviously this is a lot of research and work that you guys have put together at the University of Minnesota for the Midwest. And so, a lot of these are common in other parts of the United States as well. But for those that aren't in the Midwest, you know, being able to identify those that are in their area, working with their local extension offices, I think you mentioned before, Dr. Martinson is a, is a good option. And what, was there, some, there was something else I think you mentioned that they could reach out to as kind of like
2: a resource for them? Sure. So we, we do have a, a book and a poster, and you can see them on our website, But if and that's freely available. But if you actually wanted the poster or the book, we do offer that for sale through our website. I know that if you're more in the western part of the U.S., Colorado State has a nice website about a lot of the plants that we talked about, like you said, are found throughout the U.S., but they have a few more that are found in the west. And then Cornell also has a really nice resource for poisonous plants that, again, kind of focus more on the East Coast. But if you, you know, if you Google poisonous plants and maybe put in your geographic area, your state, perhaps, you know, your land grant university or other university might have resources. Sometimes equine nutrition companies will have resources for individuals as well, especially if they've had Kind of continuous issues. I mean, a lot of people have resources on Horiolyssum in our area just because it's such a common issue. So mm-hmm. I think Google is your friend, but the biggest thing is know what should be in your hay and pasture and be very suspicious of what looks out of place. And then, you know, go to those resources, like we said before, your local extension office, your master gardeners, your agricultural co ops, you know, other horse owners who are knowledgeable, and just try to. F- Try to have things properly identified. Excellent. And yes, and Dr.
1: Martinson does have that great poster and that book that, especially, I mean, there's so much that we weren't even really able to talk on today that, you know, talking about like control methods for some of these plants or like treatments and things like that. All that information is available in their book. And so uh, we'll be sure to link those in our show notes um, so you guys can find those later on after this episode, if that's something that you're interested in. And Dr. Martinson, how uh, how can our listeners
2: stay connected with you after
1: this episode?
2: Yeah, sure. So we, the University of Minnesota Extension horse program, we do have a monthly newsletter. We do have a Facebook page and we do have a website. And all of those are freely available. Obviously, we need your email to send you the e-newsletter, but everything else you can just find by Googling. Yes, those are probably the best ways.
1: And we'll link those for you as well. And I want to mention, I actually, talking with Dr. Duran on our kind of our summary of the Equine Science Society Symposium and some of the things that we learned there, I did mention that, but I love the resource and all of the information that you guys share on social media, so I want to make sure that we talk about this again. You guys did have a situation, unfortunately, so where your amazing and wonderful Facebook page got hacked last uh, winter, and so your new one, though, we will link it. But your new one is what is? Do you do you know what the handle yep. is? So it's just abbreviated. It's umn extension horse. Right. So. Yep. Again, if you've been missing their posts, which I was for a while, and when Dr. Cubit was sending me stuff, I was like, "Why am I not seeing any of this?" I realized i'd i not been seeing it because it wasn't being posted on the other page. So make sure you follow them <laughs> and unfollow the other one. Yes, so. that would be that would be lovely. Yes. So anything else, Dr.
0: Cubit, Dr. Martinson, that you guys would like to touch on about today's topic? I think Dr. Martinson has done a fantastic job. We knew this would be a long one, but I think it's just great information. I think I would just follow up with most of these weeds, as we've mentioned, are opportunistic and they're going to grow in more prevalently in those pastures that may not be 100% or in areas like my fence line where I sprayed. So there are certain areas where weeds are going to pop up more, more often. And just go, I I don't know whether you can link, I think we've talked about pasture management in one of our other podcasts, or if we haven't, we really should. And that could be a follow-up to this one as well, um, to how to stop these things from growing in your fields. But as Dr. Martinson said, really understanding what should be in your hay, knowing what it should look like, then you can see what's out of place. That's how I find four-leaf clovers. Here, I'm I'm just a wealth of different crazy stories. <laughs> you want to find a four-leaf clover, stare at normal clover with three leaves, stare at it, stare at it, and then go. Then just look for what's not normal. That's how you find a four-leaf clover that's the every secret. time.
2: <laughs> oh, that's great advice. That's so funny. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just – I don't want people to feel – like overwhelmed, because we did cover a lot of information, and I don't want people to feel panicked, right? Like, generally speaking, poison, you know, toxicity from a poisonous plant is relatively rare in the horse industry. It certainly does happen, but it's rare, and it usually happens during times of drought, in the late fall, or when horses have access to areas that are heavily wooded or shaded, or they have un unobstructed access to stream banks and ponds and wet areas. So if you have those areas on your property, you need to be more vigilant. Or if you are in the midst of a severe drought, you have to be supplementing hay and keeping an eye on your pasture. And those things will help you sleep easier at night and not be overly concerned about poisonous plants.
1: Right. No, that's excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Cubitt, for being on today. And Dr. Martinson, thank you for joining us and being our guest expert today. Oh, I had a great time. I Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.